Hey everyone, welcome back to it here in Apologetics. I'm so pumped you're joining us today to have Ryan Pauly joining me. Uh, he's the founder and president of ThinkWell, an organization focused on training Christians to engage the culture with a biblical worldview and the director of immersive experiences at Maven. Uh, he holds a BA in theology and youth leadership from Vanguard University and MA in Christian apologetics from Biola University and pursuing a doctorate in cultural engagement from Talbot School of Theology. Uh, today, we're going to talk about something that kind of relates to his research right now, which is the theology of the body, specifically relating to the topic of transgenderism. Uh, Ryan, what's up? Thank you for joining me. How are you doing today? Doing well, man. Thanks for having me on again. It's a pleasure to join you. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, it's been a good time, and it's good to talk to you again. I can't really remember the last time we talked. Like I, I Sometimes like when I have people on, I'll just search like Ryan Pauly at Hearing Apologetics, and what I see is from like four years ago where I'm streaming, and I'm like, I have like this like... <laughs> really tight buzz cut and i'm like it looks like i was literally like i, I might have still been in high school no maybe i still I, was in high school no four years ago was, I, I was in college i think you were like so a freshman or sophomore in college it was a while ago i maybe i think i was just married i didn't have any kids yet and so uh yeah we're both in different places now <laughs> yeah it's crazy how things change so to get things started ryan um tell us a little bit about like who you are what you're doing things like that because obviously like since the last time you've been on um a lot's changed so tell us what's yeah. up yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah. So I, after graduating college, I spent four years overseas as a missionary. And that's when I kind of first uh, became aware of students struggling with the faith, walking away from the faith. And I had studied theology and youth leadership. Um, and I kind of came to this conclusion. I'm like, I don't think students actually know what they believe and why they believe it. We need a deeper understanding of these things. But I had no idea apologetics even existed. So I'm like, I got to figure out how to teach students the why behind the what. Uh, it was about that time that I was introduced to William Lane Craig and apologetics, and I just became super pumped and excited. Um, and so from there, went on to a master's degree in further studies. But uh, my transition was in the Dominican Republic, where I was a missionary. I was teaching high school and I was working with students. I came back to California to work on my master's, continued teaching high school. And actually, kind of that's what I was doing, I think, the last time we had our conversation. Um, but as of about six months ago, I've stepped away from teaching after 12 years uh, being in the classroom with students uh, to step full time into worldview apologetics training ministry. And as you mentioned, I'm I'm doing that with ThinkWell, uh, my organization, kind of going to different conferences and churches and trying to help them think through these difficult issues and apply a Christian biblical framework to these difficult cultural issues and how do we think well and engage this culture well. Uh, and then also with Maven, uh, I get the opportunity to direct the immersive experience program. And these are really kind of like unique mission trip experiences where we train high schoolers and middle schoolers in apologetics, worldview, or theology. And then we take them on a unique mission trip experience to make them kind of put those things into practice. So for example, our, our theological trip, uh, we train them in Christian theology and Mormon theology. And then we go out to Salt Lake City, Utah, where they get into conversations with Mormon leaders, uh, students at BYU, where they go door-to-door -door evangelism through BYU student housing and have to put the theology into practice, explaining the gospel and talking about Christian faith. And the apologetics trip, same thing. We train them in Christian apologetics and philosophy. And then we go to really any town that has a university campus skeptics. We invite atheists to come in and speak to them. And so uh, it's really fun kind of uh, being able to take the experience from my mission work, as well as experience from the classroom, as well as my studies in cultural engagement and apologetics, and then apply it to the work that I'm doing and coming alongside equipping churches and trying to train students to really think well and think critically and think biblically about these kind of different cult difficult cultural issues. So it's keeping me busy and uh, trying to have some fun on the side while I'm doing it all. Yeah, it definitely sounds like a lot. So today we're talking about like the theology of the body and 
the question of transgenderism. Yeah. So Ryan, like what got you like specifically like interested in like writing about this? Cause it seems like it's something that's like kind of an area of a focus for you now. Yeah. So it started with the fact of, as I was traveling around speaking at different conferences and camps, I, I started seeing a significantly higher number of students coming up to me talking about issues that they're struggling with or uh, things that are going on in their lives related to sexuality and, and gender identity. Uh, I, back in the summer of 2021 or so, um, I was at a summer camp where there were about uh, 75 students at this camp. And I, there, I had about nine of them. They either identified as, as gay uh, or transgender. Um, there was a, a time where we were standing in line at a ropes course at one summer's camp, summer camp where the girls in front of us were talking. And one and they were talking about all the people that they're interested in and all the people they like. And this one girl kind of just responded and said, well, you know, I'm only attracted to boys. And they kind of went, oh, that's okay. Like, this is a bad thing that you're just attracted to boys, that you're not having something else. And so I started realizing that this is a more significant issue. And so within my first year of doctoral studies, we focused more broadly in the areas of gender and sexuality. And then we had to pick a subtopic within that to do, do a deeper theological study uh, and apply to a cultural issue. And so because I've been seeing so much with transgenderism, and, and to take one more step back, actually, it, it also started because my school that I was teaching at uh, said, hey, we really need to have a chapel or we need to bring someone in to talk about gender identity and help students understand gender. Can we think of anyone? And all the teachers kind of like in the meeting looked at me and I'm like, OK, I think I'm going to be that person that needs to do this. But. I'm not ready to talk about this issue. I need some time to research. And they had asked me in like August and I said, let me speak on it next spring. And I spent that entire fall researching and reading everything I could get my hands on from different sides and seeing the complexity of this issue. And while I was doing that, I would have uh, adults or people or youth workers, one point an elementary teacher come up to me and say, hey, what are you studying right now? And I said, I'm studying the topic of transgenderism and gender identity. And her response was, it's like a third grade teacher her response was, well, that's an easy topic. Just look between your legs. Um, and just brushing it off is just this, we don't really have to think through it. And so I, I found myself in, in my preparation for that chapel service, uh, getting a lot of really simplistic, um, unhelpful responses from Christians and then at the same time, seeing a lot of students really wrestling with and struggling with this issue and it causing a lot of angst as they try to figure out their own identity, as well as how do I relate to my friends? And I thought, you know, there really does seem to be a disconnect on what's going on here between Christian leaders and Christian parents and the students who are wrestling through these things. And so that's why for my specialty that uh, within the whole broad category of gender and sexuality, I chose transgenderism and then specifically a theology of the body. And what does scripture have to say about our bodies? And then how does that inform how we respond? And, and the belief behind it and kind of the premise of my research was Christians often only understand partial truths when it comes to the topic of transgenderism, and it causes them to give partial responses that are often unhelpful. But if we understand this topic within all of God's scripture, within the larger, broad meta-narrative of Christianity, of creation, fall, redemption, and how each one of those aspects speaks into this issue, then we have a more robust, comprehensive, well-rounded answer that I think then we can share the truth in a more loving, gracious way. And so that's kind of what st stemmed it and kind of the purpose of what I was trying to go after. 
So when we're looking at this, like one of the things you referenced is like this question of like simplistic responses. Um, I think I totally agree with you that like it's important that we have to understand the complexity of this question because um, I think it's very easy to fall into the trap of like wanting to give a simple response of like, oh, it's this yeah. and like we're done. But like it's you talked about like one of the things I really value of what you said, Ryan, is that you read both sides and you try to understand what are people saying um, on every side really of this debate. Cause it's not like it's really just two different responses you could give to this question. Um, so before we get into like the complexity of it, what are some of these simple responses that you see? And maybe you could reference even multiple sides here that fall short of like fully grasping, like everything that we need to understand in this, in this topic. Yeah. So, you know, that's a great question. I think so starting off, um, as I said, I, I hear the response, just look in the mirror, just look between your legs and, and there's truth to this and that our body should inform our identity. Uh, however, the problem is with this is that it doesn't take into account our fallen nature. It doesn't take into account the fact that when some people look at themselves, they don't see themselves in the way that we see them. I think a simple understanding here is think about a, a girl who has anorexia where she looks in a mirror and she says, I'm fat. You don't just say, hey, well, look in the mirror again. No, you're not. You realize that the way that she's seeing herself is distorted. And so there's some partial truth in the fact that our bodies should inform our identity, but it's missing the fact that we don't take the fall into account. Uh, others are, well, God made male and female. Again, super true. That's what Genesis 1.27 talks about. But again, that doesn't take into account that we are fallen, sinful human beings that have this corrupted, distorted understanding of God's creation. Uh, one I, one that I read uh, in a pro-transgender book uh, was the, the person was kept being told, well, just find your identity in Christ. Again, that's true. Our identity should be based in Christ. But again, then how do we understand, okay, my identity is in Christ. How do I work through these struggles I have? How do I work through the desires that I have? How do I work through the temptations that I have? As a fallen being, there's a lot going on and I want my identity to be in Christ, but I still have to reconcile who I am with all these different things that are flowing through my mind. Another thing that conservative Christians make, and these are, again, simplistic things that conservatives make. Um, you know, one, one uh, transgender individual said they were kept being told, well, just carry your cross. And they said, okay, but are you going to help me bear it? And their response was, in the church, when other people are dealing with sinful things, they, yes, bear their cross, but the church comes along and supports them versus this individual at the church they were in felt like it was just bear your cross and now they were left alone to deal with it by themselves uh, rather than the church coming along and supporting. The last one I heard from uh, a student uh, that I was working with very closely um, where their parents just said, kept saying, are you saying that God made a mistake? Is that, are you just, God, are you, God doesn't make mistakes. Right. And again, this goes off the idea that our, our bodies are created by God, that he doesn't make mistake and that your body should be uh, informing your identity. But uh, again, it doesn't take into the fall. And that's the big picture. If I can kind of summarize, those are simplistic responses from evangelical Christians. And what I think is true of them is they often look at the first part of the meta narrative of creation. How did God create? And they often don't take into account the fall. Uh, and so those are some things that I heard and read in different stuff. Uh, from the more liberal Christian side, uh, it's, you know, comments like, well, God loves everyone. Well, yeah, and what, you know, that, that's true. That God loves people. But that doesn't mean that you can do whatever you want or act however you want. God has called us to holiness. He's called us to follow Christ. Um, some say, well, don't judge lest you be judged. Well, that's true. But that doesn't mean that we can't judge at all or speak truth into different different areas of life. And so, you know, scripture doesn't tell us not to judge. Scripture tells us to judge rightly. Uh, and so I think that what we see or what I saw is that both sides of the aisle, so to speak, 
uh, often are just throwing out these slogans that they hear rather than doing a deeper dive, trying to understand not only the issue, but understand the people who are dealing with these things and then come alongside in more of a relational way rather than I'm just going to throw my slogans in from a distance, like lobbing hand grenades, so to speak. So one of the things that I think would be helpful here is like, how do we avoid these simplistic responses? Um, Cause obviously like there's a lot of like slogans that can be thrown around and whatnot. And I'm sure that um, we'll see things like this even in the future. And, but like, how do we like avoid this? And this is, I think it's something that doesn't just apply to like the theology of like the body, but this is like just in general um, in apologetics or I'm thinking of politics because there's an election in 2024 yeah. where I just, I feel like all the time I'm just seeing slogan, slogan, slogan. And it's just like, how do we, like get like a deeper and richer, like a better understanding that will help us as we progress in the topics like the theology of the body that we're talking about today. Yeah, that's so good. I, you know, there's probably a lot of things that could be said here, but the thing that pops to mind right away is this idea of what is your goal? Is your goal a relationship? Uh, is your goal persuasion to help them understand a better way of seeing themselves or seeing the world or seeing the Christian view of something? Or is your goal just to try to win an argument and walk away? Um, and you know, I was just thinking about this the other day I'm, on my YouTube channel. I have a video on whether we should pray for dead people. Uh, and a Catholic individual came in just like guns ablazing, like calling me a liar and I'm deceived and a false, all this kind of stuff. And I've had Christians come at me for different theological views. I had calling me a false teacher and a blind guide and Satan is using me to lead people astray. And, and my first thought is like, are you trying to win me over? Like if you're trying to persuade me that like Catholicism is true and Protestantism is false, people are often not won over by you just calling them out as some horrible person who's just a liar and a deceiver. Um, let's let's have a better conversation. And so I think that when we recognize like our calling is to make disciples. Our calling is to be God's ambassador. First Corinthians 5.20, right? That we are ambassadors of Christ, that God is making his appeal through us. An ambassador doesn't come in like a military with force and I'm just gonna prove that you're wrong, win an argument and I'm gonna leave. Ambassadors are about dialogue. Ambassadors are about sitting down. Ambassadors are about understanding both sides. Can I explain my views well and the other side's views well? And that's, I think, a goal that, that shifts how we then approach. I love how Daryl Bach from Dallas Theological Seminary says it. I, I have a quote here from him. He says, um, if the person that we sit, sit across from, or if the person across from me is not an enemy, but one who needs to be recovered as lost and needing to be found, I will engage differently. And I think that's a big framework that has to switch. And some people is, is not seeing the other side politically, not seeing the other side theologically as the enemy that needs to be destroyed, but rather as, as someone who's lost that needs to be re recovered, someone who has fallen into sin and needs to be saved. Uh, and so how do I then come alongside as God's ambassador trying to make disciples? And I think that will cause us to engage differently. The, the second thing I'll mention here really fast is I think that we are more prone to simplistic slogans when we don't know our stuff as well, right? It's, it's you know, if you come and say, you know, God doesn't exist, Christianity is false, and you start attacking my faith, I'm not bothered by that. I've heard all those things before, and I know the responses, and I'm just going to respond. And if I don't know response, I know there's an answer somewhere, and I'll look it up. But when you start attacking someone that doesn't have that sort of foundation to fall back on, then our other resort is attack, is lash out. It's like, you know, you trap a cat in a corner. It's like the only thing is now attack mode rather than let's sit down and talk. And so I think that grounding ourselves in this issue, in what the Bible has to say, will make us more confident in our response so that we don't 
uh, fall back on these simplistic slogans because that's the information we have rather than this deeper knowledge where we should hopefully desire to get to, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's super great, Ryan. Thank you for bringing it up and kind of going through it. I agree with so much of what you said there. Um, it's so important to read and just listen to and understand people that you don't agree with because I think it helps you enrich you and be like, oh, these aren't these like totally rational people. Like they actually have like reasons for what they believe. And like it's important yeah. that we actually look at that. So you mentioned like in this paper, like you have a, you kind of follow this paradigm or paradigm, whatever that word is about like where you have like creation and fall and redemption um, and how this is going to help us make sense of our theology of the body. Um, one, like what is this paradigm? Like, do you want to talk about it briefly, like sketch this out and like start off when you're ready with like creation um, and how creation is going to help us make sense of the theology of the body? Yeah, so what I kind of followed is what is called the meta narrative of scripture. A meta narrative is the the overarching story of reality, and so it can be put very short uh, as creation, fall, redemption, restoration that we see in Genesis one and two that God creates. Genesis chapter three, there's the fall, then there's redemption. God starts his redemption plan, and that works its way throughout the whole Old Testament. Ultimately. Um, coming the person of Jesus to, to uh, bring about the, our redemption through his death, death on the cross. And then restoration is when God is going to restore all things, and that is our life everlasting. And so these kind of four categories cover the, the broad Christian story or the story of reality. Now, it can be broken further down than that, but that's kind of the, the basics. And so what I try to then do is try to say, okay, how does the story of reality, how does God's big story um, help us understand our bodies better and then therefore help us understand this issue better? What does creation have to say about our bodies? What does the fall have to do? And what does redemption have to do? And so, as you mentioned there, creation is first. Uh, and why do I think this is important? Well, Think about this, Zach. If, if you don't know what something is for, then you don't know what you should or should not do with it, right? With everything around us, um, you, you grab a pair of scissors off my desk and it's like, well, well, what should I do with these? What? And it's the first question is like, well, what is it made for? How was it designed to be used? Same thing with my phone sitting here is, you know, should I use this as a baseball bat? Should I hit things with it? Should I try to pound in a nail with this? Should I use it to skip, you know, uh, across the lake? Should I use it as a paddle for my canoe? Like, what do I, what do I do with this thing? And the question is, well, what is it made for? And we realize that when things are designed for a reason uh, and there's intentionality there or there's purpose behind the design, then that informs us how we use it. And if you use it in a way it was designed to be used, then that is going to be beneficial to that thing. It's going to last longer. It's going to do what it was created to do. If you use something in a way it was not designed to be used, you're often going to cause destruction and harm to it. And so if we're going to ask this question of what should I do with my body? Should I take hormones or not? Should I transition or not? Should I, um, whatever it is that we want to do with our bodies, we first have to come back and take the stop and ask the question, what was my body made for? And to do that, then we have to go back to the biblical story of creation. If God is the creator and author, designer of our bodies, we have to ask that question, what does scripture tell us about what our bodies are made for? And then that will then inform how we use our bodies rightly. So that's why creation is so important in understanding our bodies in relationship to design and purpose and then how we live out. What are the things that help me to understand um, at a much deeper level than I ever did like as a kid about like uh, things related to this and, and many other things was thinking about like kind of like the way you mentioned body body Ryan like what is the right way to do things because I feel like a lot of times 
at least for myself personally, I would always think about things as like, what am I not supposed to do? Like, I don't do this. I don't do this. Don't do this. But it's like, you have to kind of come to this point where you realize that like you are designed for something like you are, there's something that you should do. And this is the right way. And this is the best way. Like, it's not just something that like you should do and it sucks and like, well, well, it sucks. And that's that. Um, it still may suck at times, but it's still like, it's the best thing ultimately. Um, and living in that right way is the best thing that you can do for your life. Like I think yeah. about like Jesus, like saying like you have life and like have, coming to have life and like have it abundantly. I know I'm very roughly sketching out that scripture right there. Um, and I think it's just a good way of thinking about things. So yeah. What, what is this right way? Like how do, like when we think about the theology of the body, um, how does creation help us make sense of like what this right way is? Yeah. So you said something there that I that I want to comment on here really quickly, and I, I think that this idea of living abundantly, um, and, and I think that is what happens when we are truly free. And I think our culture wants freedom, uh, but the way in which many in our culture are trying to get freedom is by being free from restrictions. And so I learned this from Sean McDowell. I've, I did it in my classroom for many years, and I would ask my students, uh, "Can you define freedom for me? What does it mean to be free?" And almost every single time, the, the answer was freedom means being able to do whatever you want, whenever you want to do it. And I would say, okay, then d- describe for me the person who is most free. And they say a person alone in a jungle or alone on a desert island or one time alone in, on the top of a mountain. I say, okay, um, now let's say, you know, God exists. How does God change the equation of freedom? And they would often come back and say, well, now you get in trouble for doing something you shouldn't do. Right. And so the freedom is just doing whatever you want to do. And the only thing God changes is now that there's punishment and what culture understands, what my students understood, what, what everyone kind of understands is what's called a freedom from, is we realize there's freedom from rules that if I'm in handcuffs, I am not free. The issue though, is our culture, I think has been so shaped by kind of a secular view, uh, saying that we are the ultimate authority and therefore freedom is doing whatever I want to do as the authority can do. Um, we have missed out on what's called freedom for. And this is the freedom to do what something was created for, what it was created to do. And so the illustration I would often give my students is this. I'd ask the question, no, but actually, if I take a step back, think about the person who's alone on a desert island. Yeah, you're free from government rules. You're free from laws. But is that flourishing? Is that living abundantly? Or is that like torment as you're by yourself alone on an island because we're created for relationship? Right. There's a popular show on Netflix called Alone, where they drop you know 10 people up in northern Canada by themselves and see how long they can survive. Most of them go home because they miss family. They go crazy being by themselves. And so we often see it's like, oh, how free it is to be by yourself on a desert island, when in reality, that's like captivity for a lot of people because you're not doing what you're created for, which is being in relationship. And so anyways, I would ask them this question. I would say, is a train most free when it's on the tracks or off the tracks? And they realize the answer is on the tracks. Now, what if someone came along and said, well, the tracks are very restrictive. The tracks just take the train exactly where it needs to go and it can't go anywhere else. How restrictive are the tracks? Let's free the train, take it off the tracks and stick it on the road. Well, now it's going to sit there and do nothing except for rust. And it'd be useless because a train is not designed or created for a road. It's created for tracks. So while the tracks restrict the train, the tracks free the train to do what it was created to do and flourish. And so I think that we recognize, uh, should recognize as Christians, as you said, if we're going to live abundantly, a life of flourishing is living under God's design for how he was created us. And that is when things are going to function best. And so we need to see and understand a freedom from, but also a freedom from. Four that we often miss. 
And so uh, maybe and now to, sorry, that was a whole side point, <laughs> but to then answer your question, kind of what do we see in a theology of the body? Well, there's, there's many different parts of scripture that we can kind of walk through. Uh, but the first one, and obviously the important one is that many go to is Genesis 127, uh, where it says, so God created man in his own image and the image of God, male and female, he created him. Now, what is important, and I'll just show here really quickly from this beginning, is that God has made us male and female. This, this, this is the first mention of a biological sex, um, yet at the same time, God is creating both male and female in his image. And so this, I think, points to the fact that we are different. There's a distinction yet there is also equality at the same time. God could have just said, I made people in my image, or I just made mankind in my image, or I just made, yeah, yeah, just this general statement. But it very specifically says he created male and female, two different things because they're two different things, yet both of them are created under his, uh, in the image of God, giving equality, dignity, and value. And so I think it's, it's hard because our culture often sees equal being sameness uh, versus you can be different yet equal. And that is what Genesis 1.27 has to point out. Um, and so this is a, a good thing that God created. This, this distinction is good. Uh, this goes against some ideas in our culture that, that having any sort of difference or distinction is bad and that yeah, that equality means equal, the equal and sameness. I just say, no, this distinction is good. God created us distinct, yet uh, also equal. Um, I think the second thing that this kind of points out is the fact that maleness and femaleness are grounded in physical reality. This is being made male and female is, is in reference to the physical creation. It's not in reference to their psychological determination. So this is not talking about how Adam and Eve viewed themselves, but this is how God made them talking about their biological reality. And so here we have kind of this, uh, as, as Christopher Yuan talks about this, this undeniable connection between the image of God and these ontological categories or these kind of beyond the, the physical categories, these deep identity of who we are as being made in the image of God and being made male and female. And so um, I think it's hard to say that gender is a purely, is only a social construction when you have God creating gender, male and female, biological sex, before any sort of society existed to construct these sort of ideas. And so that's, I think, one of the first kind of main themes that we see in Genesis 1.27 uh, there. And now what's interesting then is the very next verse. Why did God make this two distinct biological reality? The very next verse is, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. And so now we see the purpose I believe for why God created men and women differently is for the purpose of procreation. And so we see this biological anatomical differences being one of the main purposes for there being two different types of people. It is to reproduce, to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Okay. That's really helpful. Thank you, Ryan. Anything else you want to say about like this creation, like paradigm, like when we're looking and I know like what we're trying to do here is like summarize like a, a big paper that Ryan wrote in about like an hour. <laughs> uh, we're about halfway through and doing that. Um, so like anything else about like this creation paradigm that you want to bring up and like that you think will be relevant before we get into the fall here? Yeah, let me just let me just say this really quickly. Um, if we fast forward through scripture, uh, we can look at Genesis chapter nine. And the question is, is now before we get to the fall specifically, this is now after the fall in according to scripture. The fall happens in Genesis chapter three. So what about Genesis chapter nine? Did the fall corrupt God's image? Did the fall distort God's purpose? And I think that we the answer is no. In Genesis nine one, 
we see God continuing to command now known as family after they get off the boat to be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth. And so this same purpose is still built into them. The same reason why they exist. And, and one of the reasons, one of the purposes they have is still intact, even after the fall has come. Then we also see in Genesis nine, verse six, that uh, the answer is given for why they should not kill each other. And in the in nine, six, God says, because God made man in his own image, therefore you should not be taking lives. And so we still see that while the fall has distorted the image of God, that we still have the image of God giving value, dignity, and worth to people, as well as the purpose for why God created distinction in the biological sexes to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. I think that is a, a really important value there. And so we see that our bodies created in the image of God, not only uh, understand our biological differences, but our bodies created in the image of God inform us of how we're supposed to treat each other. Uh, our bodies created in God's image inform us of how we are supposed to engage sexually with others and being fruitful and multiplying. Um, the last thing I'll say mention here really quickly, maybe, is in um, the writings of, well, you could look at, oh man, there's, there's so much I want to say, but I'll, I'll try to keep it short. Um, you know, Jesus, Jesus also says in Matthew chapter 19 is when he's asked about divorce and Jesus goes back to Genesis 127 and Genesis 224 and saying, have you not read from the beginning? He created the male and female. Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And so we see even Jesus pointing back to creation to answer questions about divorce. And so it's our bodies created differently in the image of God that provide a foundation for marriage. And then lastly, with the writings of Paul, uh, you could skip all over Paul's uh, words and what he has to say, but we see in his writings, for example, in like 1 Corinthians, Roman as well, Romans as well, that we are waiting for the redemption of our bodies. And that's going to come into the redemption part towards the end. That, that God is not just going to do away with this body that he created, that it's purposeless or it's now been destroyed and I just need to erase it. That God has a plan for our bodies. In 1 Corinthians 6, 13, it says that we are meant, our bodies are meant for the Lord. In 1 Corinthians 6, 19, it says our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And in 1 Corinthians 6, 20, it says that we're called to glorify God with our bodies because we're bought with a price. And so our bodies, according to scripture, are, are meant to be oriented towards God and used for him. He created us for a purpose to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, but also to make disciples and be his ambassadors. And so we are doing what we are created to do, and we're doing what we're made for when we use our bodies for God. And so as some Christians believe our bodies are spiritually irrelevant, that it's just this physical thing I have. And one day I'm going to be with God in this, the spiritual life. It all is all that matters. We recognize that God created our bodies and the purpose is for living for him and using our bodies for him. And so our bodies really do have a higher calling than Christians often believe. That's really helpful, Ryan. And it's John 10, 10. I was trying to find it where it says, where Jesus says that I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Um, so we have this like paradigm of creation, Ryan. And now we want to look at like the question of the fall. Like you mentioned is something that happens very early in like the narrative of scripture. Uh, how is the fall going to like influence and help us make sense of like the theology of the body? Yeah, let me, let me just start by saying this and saying it clearly. The fall and our understanding of the fall should make Christians the most compassionate people on the planet. 
we should be the most compassionate people and engaging our world because of the fall. Like we as Christians, we have a, a backstage pass. We have a unique view into the reason why people feel the way they feel and the reason why people do what they do. We recognize this, you know, even Paul talks about in Romans that like, I do what I don't want to do because of the sin that's in me and the things that I want to do, I don't do. Like, like come, like, it's like we're, we're constantly doing things we don't want to do and we're living in ways that we don't want to live. And any Christian watching this, when's the last time you did something? You're like, God, I'm so sorry. I screwed up again. I didn't want to do that. We recognize and know that as fallen, sinful human beings, we do things that are not good. We think things that are not good and we behave in ways that are not good. And so understanding this about ourselves and others should make us the most compassionate people out there. And so we cannot stop at only understanding God's creation. God created male and female. God made your bodies. God doesn't make mistakes. That's it. End of story. Get over it. But we have to recognize that this distortion of the image of God, this corruption of our desires not only has led to a lot of these issues, but then should make us compassionate as we recognize the need to respond with nuance, with love, care, and compassion, because things are more fragile than they should be because we are broken in, in that sense. So we have this idea of like that we are broken. And I think this is helpful because like when I think about this, like we think about like the idea of like creation where we're like we're created with like these intentions of like it should be this way. And like, in my opinion, like when I think about the fall, the fall helps me to realize like, well, it's not going to be this way. Like we have this expectation about how things should be and like the way things should be like And the fall helps us to make sense of like, well, if we believe in the fall as Christians, then it's like the world that we live in is just not going to be this way. Um, and it's just like, there is brokenness and it's like, that is part of the world we live in. And it's not like this is some like mistake in the design of God um, right. because it seems like the fall is part of the design. Like there's a reason for the fall um, and it's going to help us to understand like, well, yes, there is this brokenness and we get into the theology of the body. It's like, yes, there's like, this is going to exist. Like this brokenness is going to exist. Like that's just part of the world not being perfect in the way that God uh, set up the world and creation at first. Yeah, there's absolutely, you know, the, you know, it's as the, the common question of why does God allow evil? And we recognize, you know, in like the sto story of Joseph and other places of like God can use evil for good. And so there's, there's ways in which God can redeem it. There's ways in which the evil and brokenness is teaching us valuable lessons. And there's a lot of things that can go in there and that, you know, is covered in questions of why does God allow evil? But we do recognize again that God has created all things good. Uh, God has created all things in the way that he wanted them to be, which is good. Uh, and that the fall and brokenness is because of us and our, and our human rebellion. Um, but the beauty is, as you mentioned, is that God has not left us in this place and said, sorry, you broke my world. You deserve it. Best of luck. Uh, but instead is saying, no, I will come and redeem and restore all things. And that's that last part of the story. Absolutely. Mm. Well, maybe then would it be helpful just to like go into this last part of the story then, Ryan, because it seems like it's a good transition point. And I know that there's so much that you could say about the fall. Um, and maybe we'll get into that in a minute, but like, how does redemption, like make a sense of like the theology of the body? Like we have a world that's created with, with this intent of like the way things should be. And that's gonna help us imply our, like our theology of the body. And then we have the fall, um, which is like, Hey, like the way things should be, like, it's not going to be this way. Uh, yeah. how does redemption like help us make sense of like this broken world that we live in? Yeah. So there, there's four different points that I that I tried to make uh, a case for and how it applies to this issue of transgenderism with redemption. And so number one would be this is that the gospel and, and God's redemptive narrative of redeeming us is that we are not left dead in our sins. 
Uh, our bodies are in a are, are an eternal state of decay, uh, but Christ is coming to redeem and restore our bodies. Rede our bodies are included in this redemption. The redemption, the gospel, is good news for our souls. It's but it's also good news for our bodies. Uh, we are waiting for the resurrection to bring us life. First Corinthians chapter 15 talks about that our mortal bodies will put on immortality. Uh, and so th there's an, a physical aspect to this as well as a spiritual aspect. And so I think when we recognize this, um, that the secular approach which um, that, that tries to solve the transgender experience uh, with either hormone therapy or surgery or, or realigning, uh, changing pronouns and identity or whatever that may be in the different ways in which people try to, to help um, with their gender confusion or help with their gender dysphoria, we should recognize that this provides possibly, if it does help, a temporary solution. Um, but ultimately that will not heal our brokenness. There are things that we can do in this life that do make us feel a little better in the moment, but if our ultimate need is not healed, then we will be led away from God and be separated from him for all eternity. And so we have to recognize this redemption aspect leaves us not does not leave us dead in our sins. And this is good news for all people. Uh, the second thing I think that's important here is the redemption of our desires. You see, our, our desires are good. God built us with desires. God created us for our desires, but our desires have been twisted. Um, and I think that the church often doesn't do a good job addressing this. So for example, I was at a summer camp uh, years ago and uh, I was teaching some breakout sessions and a kid came into my breakout session. I said, Hey, I was the last session. He goes, Oh, it was good. I said, what did you learn? He goes, oh, I just learned the list of don'ts. I said, what do you mean the list of don'ts? He goes, you know, don't smoke weed, don't do drugs, don't drink, don't have sex, you know, don't curse, um, you know, the list of don'ts. And I thought, you know, how much of a disservice do we do to students when we only give them the no, 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 no? Uh, Christopher West, who's a Catholic theologian and runs the, the Institute or the uh, Theology of the Body Institute. Uh, he presents this and this understanding of, of what he calls the starvation diet. That as a high school student, he had these desires and he was just told, no, 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 don't satisfy those. It's like, you know, you have hunger, but just don't eat. You have thirst, don't drink. And it's like this, what he called the starvation diet. And he goes, the problem is, is that you can only starve yourself for so long before you either have the option of I'm going to die or I have to give in. And then our culture comes along with this like fast food, what he calls the fast food diet, which is the immediate gratification of your desires, just instantly, just indulge. And it's no wonder that a lot of students are led away to that fast food diet from the starvation diet. Cause it's like, I'm going to starve or I'm going to die. Instead, we as Christians have to recognize it's not about our, your desires are evil, never indulge in them, but that our desires are twisted, that, that, that they're, they're distorted. And so we as leaders need to come to our students and help them see this is why you say no, because there's a better yes. Don't drink garbage coffee because here's good coffee. Don't eat trash off the ground because here's delicious food that's been well-prepared and is good for you. Here is a better yes. And so this is how God has come to, to, to change this, not to repress our desires. As Christopher West says, Christ did not come to repress our desires. He came to redeem our desires, to heal them, to redirect human hunger and thirst towards his eternal banquet of love. And so I think this is the beauty is that we have this kind of starving world around us. We have people with strong desires around us that are just indulging. And hopefully we can come along in this redemptive part, showing the beauty or this feast that they can have in living a way that God has called them to live. Um, number three, really quickly, is, is God's plan 
is also good, not only good for us, but it's good for the world. Um, I read a lot in secular literature uh, that, that, that the Christian view of sexuality and a Christian view on transgenderism is dehumanizing. Um, but when you, I think, understand it properly, you realize it's not just best for us, but it's best for everyone. Um, the Christian worldview has really uh, brought this beautiful thing and, and helped so many people and, and brought education and hospitals and rights and human rights and women's rights and ended slavery. And there's a lot of good things that are results of Christians living out their faith well. Obviously, the Christians have not lived out their faith well and caused harm, but when you rightly apply the Christian worldview of the world, it really is beautiful and good. And I, here's, I think, the point I want to draw from this is that Christians, and especially Christian apologists, we often focus on truth. And I just want to say what's true. Well, I think because God has created us in his image, that all humans have this, this draw to what is called the transcendentals of truth, goodness, and beauty. And I think that when we present our message as not only true, but here's how it's good and here's how it's beautiful, I think this is something that, that, that draws people, it compels people to this more beautiful narrative. And this is what we can see is that this, what we can present and what we offer to the world. And then last thing is what I kind of already told you is I think redemption and realizing that God restores people is recognizing that these people are lost, but in need of being saved. Um, Christopher, I mean, um, Sean McDowell has a quote uh, from his book, Chasing Love, where he says, mercy, sorry, when someone is transformed by God's mercy, they will extend mercy to others. Therefore, a failure to grant mercy to others reveals we don't truly grasp the depth of God's mercy to us. And I think that's the point I'm trying to make here at the end, is that when you recognize how God has redeemed you, how God saved you, how God, how there was a time when you were lost, when you were broken, when you were far from God, and God reached down and saved and rescued and redeemed you and has given you eternal life, how much more do you not want that for others? And so I think understanding this redemptive message of what God wants to do of restoring the brokenness in our culture should make us agents of restoration, should make us people that want to heal and fix the brokenness rather than people that want to just come in and win and destroy people with our arguments or with our views. That's really helpful, Ryan. And I think that like when we're thinking about like a topic today, like the theology of the body, like we got to be realized that we're not just saying like, um, it's not just like a question of like an individual like question of like say like uh like is it okay to be transgender or something like this it's like we have to have this holistic theology of the body that's going to help us answer a question like that because it's a very important question question and i think there probably is like an answer that christians can give or not probably but there is an answer that christians can give um but like when we give these answers we have to think holistically about like the, the our theology of the body and like our theology of the body does need to be anchored in things like well how does creation help us to make sense of our theology of the body? How does the fall help us to make sense of like our theology of the body? And how does redemption help us to make sense of our theology of the body? Because I think to like an answer a question like that, um, or any other question or many of the other questions related to this topic, like we have to be well-versed in theology to help us understand all these different aspects of scripture. Cause all of them are at play here. Um, when we look at the world we live in and like how a question like that's going to help us to like interact in the world and whatnot. So 
yeah, I just appreciate yeah. you helping us to think about this more holistically. Um, and not just like, oh, well, God says this, and then well, then that's that, and debate over. Like we have to realize this thing <laughs> that like like there's there's many aspects to this, and it's all like yeah. and everything that we've referenced today, like this is all within scripture. Like you're not going yeah. so yeah. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate it. Yeah, I just I just find that, you know, and this is true of me, right? This is how I grew up in a sense of as a student and as a kid growing up in the church, you you learn some basic theological points, but you don't realize the depth of it. Um, you know, I, and, and I think sometimes this is our, our, our leader's faults. And I'll just, I'll say that I, I was speaking at a summer camp where a girl told me that she'd been a Christian for two years and that she already knew everything. Now, again, I, she did not come across as a super arrogant, what I don't have to learn anything else. What I believe was happening is that after two years, her youth pastor was already on repeat. And I think to myself, like if someone like William Lane Craig can study the relationship between God and time for 12 years, like, why do I think that after six months of studying everything there is to know, I can know an infinite God <laughs> completely and fully after a few years or a few months? And I think that what we just recognize is these doctrines of grace and God's sovereignty and, and how God has redeemed us and, and the incarnation are so deep, are so fascinating and so beautiful that as we dive down deep, we just see them in a much more uh, 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 much more depth that then I think brings excitement rather than just simply, well, yeah, Jesus died so I can be saved and I get to be with him. And that's all I really understand. I think it's with anything, right? More knowledge often drives a greater passion and excitement. When you know something more about a sport, you're more excited to watch it than the person who knows nothing. When you ha have knowledge of a food, when you're a foodie, when you're a, I, I love coffee. I, I roast my own coffee. Um, when I have this knowledge, it makes me appreciate what I drink so much more than the person who could care less and will drink anything that's given to them. Um, and so I think that this greater depth of knowledge opens up this whole world of, of uniqueness and nuance and all these things that make us go, wow, how beautiful. And we realize how that simplistic answer often maybe sometimes leads people astray or really just does not capture the beauty of what God is doing. So then as we start to wrap things up here, Ryan, like what is the recommendation? Like for someone that wants to like develop like a more like nuance or like understand these issues about the theology of the body, uh, how would you recommend or like point someone towards like a deeper and like a greater understanding of like how to like look at a question um, like the ones we've been talking about today? Yeah, well, um, well, maybe first I'll say, hey, you can read my paper. Um, what I'm what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to get this paper I wrote out there. It's only 15 pages, double spaced. Uh, I wrote it uh, trying to make it accessible to all people. Um, and this will kind of give you a brief overview. Um, then just like with any kind of hopefully good resource, as you read it, I, I cite probably 15 different books from from all different angles, from uh, journalists to psychologists and psychiatrists and, and doctors to theologians, both conservative and liberal, um, both transgender individuals and and not. And so uh, I, I cite a lot of resources. And so you can kind of go back and 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 look through those resources. And, and there's a lot of great books that you can read as well. But again, I think um, the, the simple thing that you can begin to do today is to recognize that there are real people that are struggling with gender confusion. Um, now, we didn't get into this because we didn't talk about the fall. But if I can just say this here really quickly, is that what I find to be one of the biggest 
factors or what I find to be a huge influence in students having confusion on their gender and struggling with gender dysphoria, where you have this dissonance, where you have this angst within you because what you believe that you are doesn't match your biological sex is what is called these rigid gender stereotypes. Um, where I had a, a, a eighth grade girl come to me at a summer camp and said, I identify as a boy. And I said, hey, I appreciate you. Thank you so much for telling me that. Can, can I ask you some questions? Um, what does it mean that you identify as a boy? Kind of what are you feeling? What's going on? And ultimately she said, well, because I like chopping down trees and playing in the mud. To which the response of most people and mine was, why, does, why can't girls chop down trees and play in the mud? And we recognize that it is these rigid gender stereotypes. Um, I had one transgender individual say, I, I identify as a boy. And the question why is I, I walk more like a boy. How do boys walk? Like, and, and so this is like, like students are actually struggling. I've had students just breaking down, crying in front of me because of this struggle they feel where it's like they don't fit this expectation of how they are supposed to be. And because this culture, I believe, and sometimes the church has reinforced this, but our culture says, here's a blue box, here's a pink box. California teaches this to kindergartners in the California Board of Education. It says you teach gender by talking about common uh, colors and toys that boys and girls like to play with. Girls like dolls and boys like action figures. Girls like pink and boys like blue. Girls cook and, and boys go out and you know, work or whatever and play in the mud. Um, and we have these like what were previously considered sexist gender stereotypes that have now become the foundation for understanding our gender identity within queer theory. But, but what I want to say here is if we, and everyone who's listening, if we only respond as if we're responding to the political arguments that are out there, Right, the laws that are being passed and what they're trying to teach in schools and all this kind of stuff. And we only see this as an issue out there. Then we are going to miss the fact that there are students and people around us that are legitimately struggling and having angst because they don't match what culture says they should be like. And it's that person that we should come alongside and help them see that it's not their body that's wrong, but it is these rigid gender stereotypes that are wrong, that there is freedom in the body that rather than being forced into a blue or pink box based on how you act or how you live or whether you're emotional or not, or whether you're compassionate or not, or just as you can say, look, God has created me as a guy and guys, there's a spectrum in which how guys can act. Um, there is then freedom to live how God has created you uniquely to be confident in your biological sex and your gender as well. And so I think that my encouragement at the front of it, as hopefully you want to go deeper into what scripture has to say, and then understanding the cultural issues that are going on as well is recognize this is not just this idea out there, but there are real people with real things happening in their lives that actually have legitimate struggles and issues. And this is not, I'm not saying transgender is the same as this, but I think a helpful comparison is to think of anorexia. And if a girl comes to you weighing 80 pounds and says, I think I'm fat, your response is not, no, you're not look in a mirror. Like we recognize that there's a psychological thing that is deeper. Our response should also not be, yes, you are, you are fat. Let me encourage you in that. Let me help you pay for liposuction right? That is also not the proper response. The proper response is how do I recognize this is not just some abstract idea, but this is a human being who is struggling, a human being who is valuable and, and dignified and made in the image of God that I am called by God to love and care for. And I want to understand them and understand the best way to help them. 
And so there's just a different, I think, approach that we sometimes have to keep in our forefront. And then now that I believe this is someone who I'm in a relationship with that I want to love and I want to care for and I want to do it rightly, that requires some learning. Then we realize that we need to kind of take that step back and do some studies on theology and transgenderism and these different things. So I've tried to provide a, a helpful resource to help uh, kind of give a very brief overview that then will hopefully put you into deeper issues as well. So if you want to send like an email to ryan at think-well.org, uh, then I will send my paper your way. Uh, and hopefully that be will be something that is encouraging and helpful. Well, Ryan, thank you so much for coming on today. Uh, one, like share like any like last thoughts or things you want to get off your chest before we wrap up here. And then like, how can people like follow you, connect with you, things like that? Yeah, well, I think maybe I just <laughs> got all my last thoughts off my chest, but I just think that we have to recognize, um, look, uh, the scripture is clear. Uh, people often say there's a lot of different interpretations. Yeah, sure. There's different interpretations, but not all interpretations are as good as others. Um, I think that you can make a clear case of how God has created you, uh, that God has made your body uniquely for a purpose, that there's intentionality there, uh, but then the fall has distorted it and has caused a lot of issues with gender confusion and intersex people and misunderstanding God's word. And there's a lot of issues that are the result of a fall. But I hope that we can get encouragement as we talked about, because Christ has not left us. Uh, Christ is not absent. I love the Abraham Kuyper quote, uh, where he says, there is not a single square inch in the whole domain of human existence in which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry out, mine. And we recognize that Christ is in control of all, that Christ sustains all, that Christ created all, and that Christ is going to redeem and renew and restore all things. Uh, and this should hopefully give us hope. But in the midst of that, or before all that happens, we are called to participate in this work of redemption. And this is a glorious, amazing task that we as believers are called to. And so we should be encouraged by what we can do as being the mouthpiece of God in a sense that, that God is making his appeal through us as we are his ambassadors. And so that's my final word of encouragement. Uh, as far as following, um, my YouTube channel is probably the biggest place where I'm active. Uh, it's my name, Ryan Polly on YouTube. Um, I also put out uh, training letters where I, I address different uh, uh, issues and culture uh, and then provide thoughtful ways in which we can think well about those and, and address those. Um, and so if you uh, either go, that's an email sign up thing is my training letter. So if you go to either my YouTube channel and then and click on any video, the description below will say like email newsletter. Or again, if you want to shoot me uh, an email at ryan at think-well.org, I'll send you the link to sign up. Uh, and those are ways that you can continue follow. And then social media is ryanpoly3. I do Instagram live chats as well, which are more you know informal answering questions from students and all that kind of fun stuff. So just trying to stay active and help people think well about the faith and, and how to engage these difficult ideas. Well, Ryan, thank you so much. I appreciate you coming on. Um, you're very articulate and you have a really, like, you did a really good job today, just like helping me to explain and understand things a lot better than I would have before. So thank you so much for coming on. Um, encourage people to follow Ryan, connect with Ryan, things like that. And if you want to follow it here in Apologetics, be sure to leave a like, subscribe, all that fun stuff. And if you want to support the show, you can do that patreon.com slash here in Apologetics. But Ryan, thank you so much for coming on today. I really appreciate you and your time. Uh, one last time, thank you so much. And let's make sure it's not four years till we talk again, because I really enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Zach. I appreciate it. Thank you for giving me this opportunity. It's been a lot of fun chatting with you. And yeah, let's do it again soon. For sure. Well, have a good one, everyone. Thanks for listening and God bless. We'll catch you next time.